Well, it is great to have you here. I am so glad that you have joined us today. And uh, we've we got a number of great things going on. Uh, just before I jump in, I'm going to get you in a moment just to get out your sermon notes and uh, we're going to get into our series. But a couple of things I want you to be aware of. Uh, we are in the middle of taking elder nominations. And if you haven't had a chance, if you're a member of our church, uh, we'd encourage you pick up a nomination form, complete that, approach someone, have them both, both of you sign and submit that and we'll get that underway. And that's a really big part of what we're doing. Also, uh, those of you that have been, I know some of you wait for the last minute to do things. Anybody like that anywhere? Yeah, a little bit of delay. Well, we got the Global Leadership Summit coming. And a couple of weeks ago, I announced that we're getting close to our early bird registration deadline. And that's happening on Tuesday. So today, you can still register for the early bird rate of only $99. That's August 8 and 9 incredible. Two incredible days. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited. The lineup of speakers this year, I think it's going to be one of the best we've ever had. So we have a computer set up in the foyer. We'll help you register if you want. You can go to our information center. You can do it at home. All I want you to do, though, is register. Don't miss this great event that's coming. I also want to mention, a few weeks ago, I announced to you that uh, Wes and Sue Carlisle, hard to believe, they're so young. Wes, I know you're listening to me in the chapel, uh, but they're retiring and so they want to have a little bit of freedom, and, and uh, I'll let them tell their story next week. But next Sunday, we're just going to have a couple of moments in our service where we honor them and say thank you. And I know over in the chapel, uh, you are so blessed to have their leadership in that room. We're going to bring them back into this room and through all of our venues. And following each of the services next week, we're going to invite you just for a few minutes, stop for a piece of cake, some coffee, but at the very, very least, stop to say thank you to Wes and Sue. And that's going to take place next Sunday, so I want you to do that. Ushers, would you get your uh, the Bibles together? If you need to borrow a Bible this morning, you can raise your hand. Any one of our venues, we have Bibles for, that you can borrow today. Keep your hand raised. These are for you to use during the service, and you can leave them there. I do want to commend you as a church family. You are bringing your Bibles every week. I want you to do that. I want us to be in God's Word to see specifically. But if you happen to forget or if you're visiting, we loan these out, and we want you to have those. Also, if you have your smartphones or your tablets, you can go to uversion.com, go to the live events and look for us, Mississauga Portico or Milton Portico. You'll have the sermon notes. You can track along. Now, I'm going to get into my message here in, in just a real, real quick minute, but there is a great announcement that I want to share with you. Many of you have asked, are you going to put the series together? Are you going to package the series? Yes, I am. I'm going to have from last September all the way, well, don't clap yet. You're going to, you might, I'm going to put them all together and I'm only going to charge the low, low price of $999.99. <laughs> Not at all. I got a much better announcement that I think is even better. I want to officially introduce, let's go to the side screens. We have produced an app for those of you that are iPhone and Android users. Portico now has an app. On the app, we already have loaded the entire Simple Faith series. So any of you on an iOS or an Android-based device, you can now access all of our sermon series. You can get our calendar dates. You can connect with us. You can donate through us. You can see all of it. That's available right now. In fact, those of you that are in the room, if you want to go there and you have a better message that I preach than what I'm going to preach this morning, you go ahead and put your earphones in and have a good time. Some of you are going, whoa, 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 I don't have an Android-based phone, and I don't have my new iPad. Well, put your Christmas gift together. <laughs> now, um, if you don't have that yet, I have some more good news for you. 
Everybody has access to a computer. We are now on iTunes. You can get our podcasts by subscribing to iTunes. You can listen to me until you're sick of me. That might be by the end of this morning. But either way, you will have access to all of our material. And so whether you want to go through an app and download the app or whether you want to go out to uh, iTunes, and so if you're on a a Mac or a PC Windows-based machine, you can get iTunes and you can get all of our sermons. So there you go. You've got them all. We've uploaded them. They're all available for you. And you can share those. We got some, some great things rolling out this fall, but we wanted to give you a little bit of a preview. And you can actually share those with your friends because a lot of you have asked. And we have a lot of people who travel and work internationally. They can now track with us and they can stay in touch with all the messages that we're doing. So in light of all that, I'm not going to preach today. I'm going to go home. I'm tired. Let's stop. Not at all. Get your Bibles out. We are ready to go this morning. This is, believe it or not, the wrap-up message in the series, Simple Faith. It's not that complicated, but it's hard. And I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. As you're turning there, if you go over to verse 28 and verse 29... I just want to talk and set up a little bit of the context. Remember, this is a very unique context for this message. In Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, Jesus is located in northern Palestine, up in Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee. And I know for a lot of us, we're very, very familiar, but if you're visiting today, I don't want you to miss this. He's up in the north part of Israel, up near the Sea of Galilee, and the Bible tells us that he went up on a mountainside, he sat down, he called his closest followers, his disciples to come, and then he began to teach them, saying... Now, it's not the locale that's really interesting to me. It's a beautiful place. Those of you that traveled with me, it is worth visiting the region to really experience what's taking place. But it's not the locale. It's what's taking place that I really want you to see. This was an extremely personal conversation that Jesus was having with a group of his invited followers. So this was what I would call one of those private sort of closed-door conversations about what the kingdom of heaven was really going to look like. And while they grappled with the complex simplicity of Jesus' teaching, here's what we discover. There was a fully engaged secondary audience in play. Jesus saw the crowds. That's what the Bible said. He saw the crowds, went up on a mountainside, he sat down, he calls his disciples to them, and he begins to teach, blessed are you. Blessed are they. But while he begins to do this, what we pick up, and Matthew reminds us, is all of a sudden, the crowds of people look off, see Jesus up on a hillside, and they begin to migrate up towards Jesus. They're not the invited. They're not the guests. They're actually going to sit and listen in. And so all of a sudden, we have this secondary audience that is present on the day. And as though, as they're listening into Jesus, even though they're not the invited ones, they are just as equally interested. And so it's in this context that this group around Jesus of his closest followers have been hearing about the kingdom of heaven and what it's going to be like. This morning, what I want to do is I want to push you back a little bit further and I want you to stand among the crowd. I want you to be one of the ones that for a few moments, we're going to move up next. We're going to stand behind John and Peter and James and Judas. And we're going to listen over their shoulders. And as Jesus has his eyes on them, and there's eye contact with these men, I want you to watch what's going to take place in the life of Jesus here. Because this crowd was equally interested. 
they were filled with curiosity. And what Jesus does shocks them to a degree that I don't think we often comprehend. Now, why did this all take place this way? Remember, we pick up the Bible, we begin to read, and we go, we've heard about Jesus. How many of you have heard about Jesus for as long as you can remember in your life? Yeah, good number of us. We hear His name all the time. We hear His name profaned all the time. But this crowd of people who had gathered in around the primary audience, Jesus was a virtual unknown. He wasn't somebody whose face was on a billboard. He wasn't somebody that was being podcast or there's an app out there for him to speak with. Jesus was a virtual unknown. There were thousands of teachers and philosophers and idealists and zealous. There were already, get this, there were already self-proclaimed messiahs running around. There were people that were claiming to be the messiah that God had promised to send to Israel. You had the rabbinical communities. You had centers of learning. You had monastic societies. You had philosophical debate forms. In this cultural milieu, Jesus steps in and He's a virtual unknown. Now watch what He does. There's no trepidation. There's no hesitation in His voice. He speaks with confidence. He speaks with authority. And He speaks with an intentionality. So much so that people are riveted by His words. They can't Get their eyes off this guy. All the other teachers had to position and posture themselves. Even the rabbis would always posture, well, according to the rabbinical law, or according to so-and-so, and according to this. And everybody would position and posture so they could defend their words. And if people didn't like it, they had another source to go back to. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke with authority. And they were gripped by this man. That's why this context is so critical. Because Jesus has His disciples and He's just pouring His life into these men, knowing that this is the future, what the church is going to look like. And this crowd, and you know what it's like to be in a crowd. Man, just come on down on Canada Day and go over here to watch the fireworks down at the park. And you are like shoulder to shoulder and you're packed in and you're just sitting there waiting for the demonstration. That's what it's like to have a a crowd of people just pressed in together. And everybody wants to know because this Jesus is just shocking the world. And that's His context. Now to the crowd... And even, in some ways, to his initial followers, they were still grappling with who Jesus was. Think about it. Because where they were situated, this locale, Jesus was from Nazareth. That was just over the hill. He wasn't that far away. This was a hometown boy who's now sitting up on a mountainside, and he begins to teach as if he has the right to teach. He's a local guy. His dad, though not with him anymore, was a carpenter. He was a blue-collar worker. And so Jesus is the son of a carpenter. You couldn't get a more common upbringing than that. This man has no formal training. He has no theological training. He has no recognized authority by their understanding to fall back on. To them, Jesus was an enigma. He was overtly ordinary. But when he spoke, he was extraordinary. And they couldn't understand that. How could a commoner speak like this man? It's impossible. And when he finished speaking, there was absolute astonishment. Look in your Bibles. Let's go there right now. When he finished speaking, there was absolute astonishment. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28 and 29. The Bible says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were... What? Well, that was weak. The crowds were amazed or astonished 
at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The question is, who is this man? The entire time that the crowd was fixated on his every word, his every gesture, his every facial feature. When Jesus began to speak anything that he did, they were drinking it in. They were riveted by this man. The verb that's used there is a very, very interesting word. You know, it says amazed or astonished. It's translated that way in your Bible. And I think the challenge that we have is we use the word amazed so glibly. You ever notice everything's amazing? Ah, your kids are amazing. Your golf game is amazing. Mine isn't. Ah, your car is amazing. Your job is amazing. That cake is amazing. That dress is amazing. Right? We use it all the time. So we've stripped the word of the power of description. But the word amazed or astonished is a word that is rooted much deeper here. And here's what it really means. It means to be dumbfounded, to be seized, or to be gripped. It means that when Jesus was teaching and they watched him teach, when he finished, they were like, don't stop. Don't stop teaching. And so the power of that word is incredible. We have reduced it, so we read these English words. But if you could just catch us for a minute, when Jesus was teaching his disciples and his followers, the crowd would watch his head move this way. The crowd would watch his head move this way. They were hanging on every word. Some of them thought he was a heretic. Others wondered, could he be the Messiah? But what they didn't dare do was interrupt this man because all they could hear is roll out this kingdom manifesto in the truth of what the kingdom was going to look like. I don't know how to describe to you what was taking place there. I went in and I looked at this word in such... The intensity of the word amazed is so shocking. The only way I can really um, bring you into the context, I remember Laura and I, the very first time, one of the productions, the, the um, Broadway productions I really enjoy, it's called Les Mis. Some of you went and saw the movie recently. And I remember the very first time we went to see the live production. And I, I had no idea. I had no understanding. I'd never been before. Anybody ever done that first time in your memory experience? I went to see Les Mis. We bought our tickets. We were living in the West. We drove down to Seattle. We had booked a hotel. We we're going to make a nice weekend out of this. And we went in. And I thought, oh, this is going to be cool. It's kind of like a movie done real. That's nice. And I got there. We got up to our seats. And I remember when the house lights fell. And then all of a sudden, like the overture begins and there's doom, doom. And you're like, whoa, that's awesome. And it just would reverberate through the room. And as the over- overture fades out, then all of a sudden you have that. The lyrics and the choruses of the prison gang begin to speak. Look down, look down upon your fellow. And from that moment, I was sucked into that production. I didn't even realize it until we hit the break. You know the middle break in the, in the production? I felt like I was sitting on the very edge of my seat. I was fixated on the room. I wasn't merely watching something anymore. I was living it. I was inside it. I was wrestling with Javert and Jean Valjean. I was wrestling with truth and grace and mercy and forgiveness. I was wrestling with the whole emotion and the injustice in society. And for a few moments, I forgot the world I lived in. And I lived inside of a world of language and music and lights and drama. Do you know what I'm talking about? You experience that? That's what it was like for these followers of Jesus and the crowd. Because for a few moments, they were listening to Jesus speak. And you have to understand something. When Jesus spoke, He said, Blessed are you, and blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the merciful. What was causing them to be so riveted? Because they were daring to dream. They were going, Jesus, if I could just live in a community where people lived like that. 
If I could just be part of a society where there were those that really mourned and those that comforted and those that dared hunger and thirst after righteousness. Oh God, what, what would it be like to be a part of a society like that? See, the Bible says that they were destitute. They were like a shepherd without, a sheep without a shepherd and they were wondering, what's our future going to look like? And Roman occupation overpowers them. And they saw the injustice and they saw the mistreatment and they saw how the poor were persecuted. And all of a sudden you have a teacher, a virtual unknown man. And he sits down on a Galilean hillside. And he begins to say, Blessed are you. And blessed are you. And blessed are you. And it wasn't just his disciples Because anybody in the crowd, if we were there, I would have done the same thing. I would want, God, I want to be a part of a kingdom that's like that. I want to be a part of a city where the inequity is cast out and where justice is brought in. I want to be a part of a civil organization where leaders understand what mercy and justice really looks like and compassion and fairness is instituted where people aren't bribing and distorting, but you give, where you don't have to worry about the extremities. And Jesus takes, and I said it earlier, but there's this complex simplicity where He goes, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, and unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And then He raises my hopes because if I was listening to Him in the crowd, then He said, you know what? The kingdom of heaven is just like this. If you'll do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you've found my kingdom. You found my kingdom. That's why the crowd was amazed. It's like their bodies were filled with this incredible tension. You know when you can't breathe and you're just, you're just waiting and they're hanging on every word. And the Bible says then when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed. And I think sometimes we race over that so quickly we miss it. It's as if Jesus finished making his declaration and then you could hear this, out of the crowd. Because there's tension in everything Jesus just said. There's hope, expectation, promise, anticipation, and then you've got those that were of the religious persuasion that are on the borderline edge of causing an insurrection because the man is a heretic, according to their estimation. So I want you to go to your notes this morning. And how do we understand who this man is? And why was the tension... So dramatic in the moment right there. Well, it wasn't just the manifesto and the option of living out the kingdom dream that Jesus talked about. Right within this manifesto, Jesus makes some powerful assertions. They got it. And no one dared whisper a word until Jesus was done. But the assertions that Jesus made, they got it. And it brought them to this question, who is this man? How can he just simply be a commoner and a blue-collar worker's son? He can't be. He speaks like no other. Who is this man? And there were four audacious assertions. They were bold. They were edgy. And Jesus layered them right into his conversation. And I want you to understand this. Because if we get it, it will change the way we ask the same question. Who is this man? And so in your notes, I want you to fill in four real quick blanks. And as they breathe the sigh of relief and the tension exhales out of their bodies, here's what Jesus had done. He made four incredible assertions. The first one was this. He claimed to have ultimate authority. He claimed to have ultimate authority. A commoner, a virtual unknown, no rabbinical training, no rabbi who was tutoring him, and yet he claims this ultimate authority. How do we know that? I'm going to stay right in the Sermon on the Mount so we get this. Matthew chapter 5. 21 and 22, Matthew chapter 7, 24. Here's what Jesus did. We know that he made these statements. You have heard it said. 
He pulls out rabbinical sources, rabbinical leaders. He pulls out philosophical schools and monastic societies. They had heard it said. And then he layers one line and he says, But I say to you. I say to you. Not my source says. I say to you. And he claims ultimate authority. See, that's what would have fixated their attention on this man. Because he wasn't claiming any other training. He was claiming a source of ultimate authority. And they wanted to know, where do you get this authority? Matthew chapter 7, 24. Jesus, we talked about this last week. He says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. He calls out his authority again. He goes, if you hear my words and you put it into practice, why would you do that unless you truly believe he has ultimate authority? And so Jesus makes this audacious assertion that I have ultimate authority. Go back into your notes. It wasn't just that. There was another one. It was his uniqueness. He asserts that his life is altogether different than anything they'd ever known before. That his life, his mission, and his destiny are all intertwined into a much greater calling. That deity exists within the constraints of human flesh. And you're going, where did you see that, Doug? Nowhere does he call out deity in this. Yes, he does. If you go back into Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, and we don't have time to unpack it all here, but he said, Blessed are you when people persecute you and uh, insult you and falsely call out all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me. Because when you start to live your life after my life, he was starting to establish himself that I'm altogether different than anyone you've ever seen before. Then to trump it all out, go back to Matthew chapter 7. It's there in your notes, Matthew seven twenty one, And Jesus said, There will be those who will come to me, and they will say, Lord, Lord. Not lowercase l, capital case l. They will be those who come, and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he said, Now I'll say, go away. And he ties in both the lordship and my Father in heaven. And he ties it all together. I am absolutely unique. And he pulls a glimpse of deity. That's why the crowd was fixated on this man. He wasn't painting a picture of a better day in Jerusalem or a better day up in Capernaum. He was painting a picture that you could experience the radical kingdom of God now and yet to come. It's all available. It's right there. Go back into your notes. There's another assertion he makes. He also, in his conversation in the Sermon on the Mount, talking to those that were his closest to followers, remember the crowd's listening in, but he claims the right to be the Messiah. He calls it out. I have come, he says, to fulfill the law and the prophets. I have come. And he, bought, he begins to map out for them the understanding. This is what you've been waiting for. Look at Matthew 6, 9 when he teaches them how to pray. He talks about and when you pray, pray to your Father in heaven and pray that your kingdom come. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about my Father. And he invites them to pray to his Father. He was calling out his Messiahship. In a world where others were doing self-proclaimed Messiah status, Jesus goes, hey, I have ultimate authority. I'm altogether unique and I am the Messiah. I am the one. And the crowd holds on his words. And then he lands one more assertion. And in your notes, fill it in. And I I have the sole right to judge. I have the sole right to judge. In Matthew 7, 1, we read it in our sermon series earlier. Jesus said to us, he said, Do not judge, lest you be judged by others. And yet, interestingly enough, when he gets back to the end of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23... 
He exercises the one sole authority, the one judge that has the right to judge. It's Jesus. And he says, away from me, you evildoers. That's why the crowd was so amazed. It wasn't just the authority, but layered with the authority were the assertions, these audacious claims that Jesus made. And he goes, do you understand that I have the authority, that I am the Messiah, that I'm altogether unique and I am the sole judge? And as he speaks to his disciples, everybody's leaning in and holding on to these words and they're going, who is this man? Now, I want you to take your Bibles out because I've got to show you this. Everybody, get your Bibles out if you wouldn't mind, if it's electronic. Uh, and I'm going to rapid fire. I'll put it on the screen. I just, this grips me. This blows my mind. Jesus comes off the mountain. You've got to get this. The crowd is like, whoa, who is this Jesus? And they're still struggling with this ordinary blue-collar carpenter commoner. And the Bible says that Jesus comes down off the mountain, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. And I'm going to take you through Matthew 8 to Matthew 10. And if you can write quick and you can follow along, keep your eyes fixed on the Bible. Don't look at me, just listen to me. I'm going to give it to you right out of my Bible right now. Jesus comes down off the mountainside. He turns the ancient Near East upside down. He catapults from near obscurity to infamy. How does he do that? Watch as I go. Matthew 8, 1 to 4, off the mountain, he heals a man of leprosy. Matthew 8, 5 to 13, a Roman centurion comes to him. Jesus, my, my servant is sick. Come. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. He says, don't come. I'm a man under authority. Pick that up. I'm a man under authority. Say the word. Matthew 5 to 13, Jesus heals the man's servant. Matthew 8, 14 to 17. He goes up to Capernaum, Peter's mother-in-law, sick in bed. Jesus goes over, heals her. And that night, those that are filled with demons and those that are sick come to Peter's mother-in-law's house and he heals all of them. Matthew 8, 23 to 27, him and his disciples. Are you getting this? They get in a boat. They begin to cross the Sea of Galilee. As they're going across the Sea of Galilee, a furious storm comes up. I talked to you about this last week. I said there would be a time that the disciples would be somewhere and the rains would begin to fall and the winds would begin to blow and they would remember the words, if you build your house on the rock, you will stand. If you build your house on the sand, it will fall. They're in a boat in the middle of the lake. These are experienced fishermen. They're freaking out. And Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves and the storm calms and they go, who is this man? Matthew chapter 8, 20, uh, 28 to, or chapter 8, 28 to 34, two demon-possessed men are brought to Jesus. He heals them. Let's go forward. Matthew chapter 9, 1 to 2, a paralytic calls out. Jesus heals him. Matthew 9, 18 to 26, a ruler's daughter dies. She come, he comes and pleads with Jesus. Jesus, come, put your hand on her, and she'll be made well. Jesus said, I'll go to your house. Follow along real quick. Jesus is making a way to the house. The crowds are pushing in. In the crowd is a woman who has been subject to illness for 12 years. She's been watching everything rapid fire all the way through this taking place. She goes, if I can just touch the hem of this man's garment, I'll be made whole. Powerful faith. And as the crowd is moving towards the ruler's house to heal the daughter, this woman presses her way through the crowd, forces her way in between legs and arms and bodies, believing if I can dare touch Jesus. And she reaches out and grabs this man's coat, the cloak at the very bottom, and is instantly healed. And Jesus stops. And he turns around and he goes, who touched me? Get this. And his disciples are going, are you kidding? Jesus, we can't even move because of the crowds. Who touched you? He was revealing, I am not an ordinary man. 
And I know the purpose for which I've been sent. He goes, who touched me? And he turns and he sees this woman and trembling before Jesus. She goes, this is my situation. And I really believed no doctor, no physician, no natural path could help me. And I knew that if I could just touch you. And he says, go, your faith has made you whole. The delay gets him to the ruler's house where the daughter is now dead. He gets in the house. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, 18 to 26, they're playing flutes, they're dancing. It's the music dirge of a funeral. And Jesus walks in and he said, she's not dead, she's sleeping, get out of the house. And they mock him. They kick him out of the house. He walks over and he does what he does so well with kids. I love Jesus. He goes over and he just picks up her little hand. Get up. And her eyes open. And with the same stuttering breath that the crowd had on the side of a mountain, the girl would have gone, who is this man? I think we have sanitized and tamed Jesus to the place. We no longer understand the power of the one whose name we profess. This man has a power that they didn't understand. Go back to the Bible. Matthew chapter 9, 27 to 31. Two blind men hear that Jesus is coming. They can't see Him and they cry out, Have mercy on us. Look at their statement. It's there in the Bible. 27 to 31. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Son of, why did they call out Son of David? Because they had faith to believe that a Messiah would come from the line of David and this Messiah would free the people and bring healing to the land again. And two blind men have faith that is produced through hearing, not through sight, and they're hearing of the name. And they call out, have faith and heal us. And Jesus heals them. Matthew chapter 9, 32 to 33, a mute who has never spoken before. Jesus touches him and he's healed and he begins to speak. Can you imagine what he would have said? And then get this, go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, 1 to 8, what does Jesus do? You've got this world upside down. You've got miracle after miracle after miracle. Jesus is now catapulting into infamy. And then he turns around and he calls together his 12. And he says to his 12, and I give all authority unto you. And you go out and you cast out demons and you heal the sick. You go into the towns of Israel and you bring the message of the kingdom. See, friends, Jesus didn't come just to bring us a manifesto of a better way to live. He didn't come just to transform our communities. He came to transform lives. He came to bring people back to the presence. And he did it. And this crowd is following him. And it's just not an ordinary man. And it begs the question, who is the man? Who is this man? All right, bring your attention. I want to take you to the screens now. I'm going to read it off the screen. Can you guys give it to me? We're going to go rapid fire. Look at these verses. Matthew 8, 27, when this was happening, the men were what? Amazed. And they asked, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Go to the next one. Matthew 9, 8, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to man. Go to the next one, Matthew chapter 9, 26. And news spread through all that region. Go to the next one, Matthew chapter 9, 31. And then they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And go to the next one. And Matthew chapter 9, verse 33. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Do you get it? Do you get what was happening in the Sermon on the Mount? This wasn't a picnic in northern Galilee. This wasn't just a small, discreet little gathering of a few followers of Jesus. The crowds, the secondary audience were watching this commoner and they realized there's something about him. There's something in his authority. There's something in his uniqueness. There's something about his messiahship. And there's something about the fact that he has the sole right to judge. And all they could ask is, 
who is this man? Who is this man? I think too often when we come to the name of Jesus and we come to the Scripture, we don't sit on the edge of our seats anymore. It's too familiar. But when we open up the Bible and every time I read, I go, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? Do I have the faith like these that when they heard your name and they didn't even know yet and they still had you associated with Nazareth as a local guy, do I have the faith to dare believe that, God, there's something much bigger than the life that I live today? That's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Get this. Go back into your Bibles. I'll put it on the screen if you want. John or Matthew chapter 11. Remember John the Baptist? John is the forerunner of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, 2 and 3, get this. John now was in prison. He heard about the deeds of who? No, no, no. The Messiah. Something's going on with John. He heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? This is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. He's listening to all the reports. You see it happening? He's hearing about the deaf, the mute, the blind, the dead, the demon-possessed, the sick. He's getting all of the reports. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And go to Matthew chapter 11 now, 4 to 6. And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Who is this man? You see, when I look at the Sermon on the Mount, friends, it doesn't teach me just a better way to live. It's not an ethical treatise, and it is all of that. But it's not merely a way to live my life so that I live a better life. The Sermon on the Mount begs the question, are you the one, Jesus? And it begs the other question, who is this man? Who is he? And I dare say every one of us needs to stand in the crowd just for 30 seconds this morning. And we need to look at the Sermon on the Mount in a new way and ask ourselves, do I really understand Jesus? Do I have a conviction at the core of my soul that Jesus has sole authority as the voice of the Son of God? That Jesus is altogether unique He is God wrapped in flesh because God said, I have seen and I have heard and I am concerned and I will come down to rescue you. And all the way back in the Garden of Eden, he said, when the first Adam failed, the second Adam will come and he will rescue his people. Do I really believe that he's altogether unique and he is the one who has the deity? Do I believe that he is the Messiah, the promised one who will save his people and us from our sins? And do I have that reverent, that, that reverent, awe-filled respect that there will be a day that I will stand in the presence of Jesus and I will either give an account for the life I lived as a follower of Jesus or I will give an account of a life when I chose to deny the reality of His claim over my life. It's only going to be one of two things. It's either my knee will bend to lordship or my knee will bend because I finally realize His Lordship. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does to me. And that's why when we started this whole series off, I needed to make sure we didn't miss this. It's not about the teaching, it's about the teacher. Because when you know the teacher, the teaching begins to flow out. It's about trusting and then walking in obedience. Who is this Jesus? No one else in history made the claims that Jesus made. 
No one else in history willingly laid down their life to back up these claims. No one else in history was raised back to life by the power of God affirming the veracity of his claims. It begs the question, who is Jesus? And who is he to you? And the only way I can leave it with you is we are going to honor him in just a few moments by taking communion and recognizing that he is the Lord, the Son of God, the resurrected one. But the question we must answer for ourselves, who is Jesus to you? You see, friends, it's simple faith. It's not that complicated, but it's hard. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we would be so remiss if we summarized an entire series on the Sermon on the Mount and we didn't stand as one of those within the crowd in utter amazement at who you are. That our breath is literally taken away when we realize no one else claims the authority you claim. No one else claims the uniqueness of being deity wrapped in flesh. No one else claims the right to be the Messiah and the sole judge because no one else backed it up with their very life and said, not my will, but your will be done. And he laid his life down on a cross. And in obedience and humility, you honored him and resurrected him to life. And this day is a day that I can say, this is why I've come to worship. And this is why I've come to bow down because you are my Lord and my God. But each of us needs to answer that question. And whatever venue you're in or wherever you are, driving in your car or maybe listening, who is this man to you? Is he merely a great religious leader and teacher who appeared on the scene? Or do you get it? He is the Son of the living God. He is the one that should cause our hearts to stop with awe every time we hear his name. And he's the one that when we hear his name, our faith should explode and we dare to believe the impossible because he made the impossible possible. So who is he to you? So I'm just going to call it out straight. Is he the son of God to you this morning? Is he your Lord and Savior? If he's not, well, today's the day. And I just want you to have the same strength and courage that Jesus used. And if you've never claimed Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, I want you to raise your hand all across this room, in the other venue, wherever you are. Real quickly, hold it up real high. I just want to pray for you. And you're just saying, Doug, today, I just, without a doubt, I'm claiming Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. And that's your prayer. And I just want to pray for you before we go. Anyone, anywhere in this room? Yes. Anyone else? We're just going to wait for a moment. Lord, as we wrestle with that question, I pray, make it unmistakably clear. And I want you, for those that raised a hand, those that are inside just making decisions right now, I want you to do the truth of your word that says when we claim you to be our Lord, you forgive our sins. 
And we're no longer in the crowd. We're part of the chosen. We're part of those that follow you. And our lives are radically transformed. And so I pray, may that be done today. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask our communion service, would you come immediately to the front? And would you just take the trays and the, and the juice, the bread and the juice? We serve an open communion. That means that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, denominations, doesn't matter, don't care what church you go to, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we invite you. But for all of us this morning, I want you to hold the cup of juice and the piece of bread in a little different manner this morning. I want you to hold them, and I want you to stand in the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount. One question, who is this man? And am I giving Jesus everything that he asks from my life? And as we honor him and his life and his death and resurrection, let's do that this morning.